Hello, greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us, and we're glad for your interest in spiritual things. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. The primary message of the New Testament is the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, his ascension and lordship, and his imminent return and judgment, as we can see in, in Luke 24, Acts 2, 1 Corinthians 15. But a key part of that are the, those who saw Jesus in his life and who were called to testify as the witnesses of his resurrection, the twelve apostles. Jesus specifically chose twelve men to learn of his teachings, to witness his life and his work, and he visited them in his resurrection, and he commissioned them to receive power from the Holy Spirit to go to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to the world. See this is Matthew 10, 18, Luke 24, and Acts 1 and 2. These men would work to turn the world upside down, and we're to learn from their examples as they modeled the life of Jesus. Acts 17 and 1 Corinthians 11. So who are these apostles? Well, there's Simon Peter, the fisherman, who was always listed first, the chief spokesman of the twelve. There's John, the brother of James. They are both the sons of Zebedee. They, with Peter are the three who are the closest to Jesus. And John is the disciple whom Jesus loved in John. Gospel. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. Matthew 10, 26. And then there are the rest of the apostles, whom we will speak of the minor nine, not because they are less important, but because we learn comparatively less about them. Originally, it was Andrew, brother of Peter, James, who was a brother of John, Philip, Bartholomew, who also may be Nathaniel, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, who is also called Levi, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon, called the Canaanite or the Zealot. We find them in Mark, Matthew 10, Mark 3, and Luke 6. In Acts chapter 1, when Judas would hang him, after Judas hung himself, Matthias would take Judas's place. And we do well to explore what can be known about these men and to learn from them. And we're going to begin with Simon Peter. Simon Peter's character is very well developed in the Gospels and Acts. Who is Simon Peter? How did he conduct himself? How did he grow and mature over time? What remained the same about him? And what can we learn about following Jesus from Simon Peter? Simon Bar-Jonah as he is called, is by all accounts a rough contemporary of Jesus. He's a fisherman from Bethsaida in Galilee. In John 144, it says he's from Bethsaida, like Philip and Andrew were. Andrew is his brother. And in John 1, 40-42, uh, we're told that he introduces him to Jesus. Now, the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 5, they're fishermen who are called by Jesus from their nets to become fishers of men. His name is Simon, the son of Jonah, or John, uh, in Matthew 16, 17, and John 21, 15 through 17. He's living in Capernaum, and we know he's married because his, Jesus heals his mother-in-law in Matthew 8, 14. In 1 Corinthians 9, 5, Paul says Cephas is carrying around a wife. And because he's an elder in 1 Peter 5, we assume he has children, based upon the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Simon Peter is recognizably Galilean. He is known by his accent, and that's seen in Mark 14, 70, and Acts 2, and verse 7. In Acts 4, 13, when brought before the Sanhedrin, uh, he is recognized as unlearned and ignorant, 
which means he did not have, he had not received a formal rabbinic education. Um, so we can tell that G, by the time Jesus is in his ministry in 27 to 30, Peter is already fully participating in adult life. He's married, he's working as a fisherman, he's got everything lined up. And he lives until the days of Nero, around the year 64 or so. And that's why we suggest that he's unlikely to be much older or younger than Jesus. Thus a rough contemporary, a first century Galilean Jew, part of the unwashed masses. An ordinary man, who we're going to see, is given opportunity to participate in the most extraordinary of circumstances. In the Gospels, Peter is, Simon Peter is called to be a fisher of men. As Jesus begins proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in Galilee, in Mark, Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 5, very early on, Peter is, Simon Peter is called. Now in John, this is, it's actually near Jerusalem, in Bethany beyond Jordan, that Jesus is about ready to return to Galilee. And there, Andrew, uh, a disciple of John, hears from John, the Baptist, that Jesus is the Lamb of God and begins following Jesus and introduces Simon to Jesus. And at that point in John's Gospel, Simon is called Peter. In all the lists of the disciples, when all of them have been called in, in Matthew 10, Mark 3, and Luke 6, Simon Peter heads up that list, in every single one of them. And that's because he quickly establishes himself as the mouthpiece or spokesman in the Gospels. Of course, the great moment of Peter is in Matthew 16, 16, when Jesus asks the disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, it's not for nothing that he's the one to blurt that out. Um, throughout the Gospels, if somebody's going to answer for the whole, it's Simon Peter. Now, did the other disciples recognize him as their ringleader? That's very disputable. In Matthew 20, for instance, James and John are going to have uh, their mom ask to have them sit at the left and right hand of Jesus in the kingdom, which would be the place of prominence. Uh, Mark 9, they're arguing amongst themselves who is the greatest. So if there can be an argument, it's obvious that Simon is not automatically seen as such. But it's clear, reasonably enough, that they're content with him being their spokesman because he's doing it very often. Uh, Matthew 18.21, 19.27, many other instances, and the other disciples sometimes say nothing, sometimes they will uh, agree and, and say the same. A very important and notable thing about Simon as a disciple is that he exhibits a very acute awareness of the distance that exists between Jesus and himself. But he's able to have a really deep relationship with Jesus. And he puts a lot of trust in Jesus in as much as he understands. The caveat's going to become important. But, but Peter is a very faithful person. He, very, he sticks to Jesus throughout. In Luke 5, uh, it's very compelling. Jesus tells them to go put out a catch. And, and, and Simon says, We've toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I'll let down the nets. And they've captured a large number of fish that the nets were breaking. Uh, when Simon Peter saw it, and they saw the boats were sinking and they needed help, he instead fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Because he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch that they had taken. Jesus tells them, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. So Jesus calls them to catch men. But Peter sees the great 
power and holiness in Jesus and understands the distance. I am a sinful man. It's Simon who proves willing to go out and meet Jesus in the water, Matthew 14. Bid me to come out in the water to you. And he does, and he walks on water. It's Simon who declares he is willing to die for Jesus. And in fact, in John 18.10, he follows up with action. He's the one who chops off the Malchus's ear, the servant of the high priest. So, that's why it's Simon who says that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In John 6, 68-69, a a different confession, so to speak, that after Jesus said hard things about eating his body and drinking his blood, uh, Jesus turns and asks if the disciple, the twelve, are going to leave also. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So it's a very compelling confession that he makes. But what's interesting is the same impulses that led him to say such things and to and to be the first one out there are the same ones that lead him to act impulsively in unwise or inappropriate ways. Right after saying to Jesus, you are the Christ of the living God, when Jesus then starts explaining what that means, that he's going to go up to Jerusalem, he's going to be abused by the chief priests and elders, he's going to be crucified and then rise again. Simon takes him aside in verse 22 and rebukes him. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. So that Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are setting your mind on the things, not on the things of God, but on the things of man. Uh, to be called the Satan after being called the rock. A very quick change. But, all of that flows from the same impulse. He certainly believes that Jesus is the Christ and the living God, but according to the way he understands what the Christ would be and how the Christ would operate. And what Jesus had offended that deeply. It's, of course, also uh, his response to the resurrection, transfiguration, excuse me, where he stupidly just says, We're going to build, let's build tents for you and Moses and Elijah. You know, the text even says he doesn't know what he was talking about because he just, what, what are they going to do? in Matthew 17 in parallel comments. And, of course, after saying he would die with Jesus, and even chopping off Malchus's ear, when confronted while Jesus is under trial, three times, just as Jesus predicted, prophesied, Simon Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. And he went away and wept bitterly. In Matthew 26, 58, 69, 75, Despite all this, despite the betrayal that he knows is coming, and the denial he knows is coming, despite the vacillations and the impetuousness, Jesus always has a lot of confidence in Simon. And he gives him the name Peter, a rock. Aramaic, Kepha, or Cephas, that we see in Matthew 16 and 16, John 1 and verse 42. He is going to be the rock. Upon the church, he will build his church upon the foundation of the confession that Simon gives. Simon is but a pebble on a much larger rock. Simon is a rock for Jesus. It's very interesting to see what Simon Peter does after Jesus' death. Because he denied Jesus. But he remained with the other disciples after his death. In John 22 and verse 10. When he hears Mary's news that the tomb was empty, he ran with John to the tomb in Luke 24 and John 20. And because in Luke 24 through 34, the disciples on the road Emmaus come in and they hear, The Lord is risen and has appeared to Peter. 
gives us the impression that Jesus appeared first to Simon before he appeared to the rest of the disciples. In another resurrection appearance in John chapter 21, when they had brought in the impressive haul of fish, John says to Peter that it is the Lord. And Peter just jumps in the water, as is, and, and to go out to be with Jesus, and leaves the other disciples to bring in all the catch that they had just made, they had just obtained. And in 20, chapter 21, the end of chapter 21, a very touching scene, where Jesus restores Peter, where three times he talks to and asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you. And Jesus tells him to feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. Peter understands what he's doing, the threefold denial, the threefold restoration. And that is why in Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 26, that after Jesus had ascended, but before the day of Pentecost, it's Peter who stands up. And it's Peter who interprets the Psalms to say that there's another who must take the place of Judas. And Matthias is, appoint is appointed in that place. But it's Peter who is the catalyst for that. And so as a disciple, Simon loves Jesus, and he trusts Jesus to a significant degree. But his expectations about the kingdom and how Jesus would establish it were very different from how things would take place. So Simon's willingness to say what others are thinking, to act, to promise to extend himself, proved to be his strengths and weaknesses, depending on the circumstance. But when Peter becomes an apostle and receives power from on high in Acts chapter 2, um, any doubts about his role would be, would be completely erased. Because the first 12 chapters of Acts rightly can be seen as a story of the advancement of the gospel through the work of Simon Peter. In Acts 2, when they, all, the, all of the apostles have received the gift of the Holy Spirit and the tongues and are speaking in various languages and mighty works of God. But it's Simon Peter who turns and preaches the lesson in Acts 2, 14 through 40. So he's the first one to preach the gospel message with the uh, witness of the resurrection to the Jews. In Acts 3 and 4, Peter and John go up to the temple, but it's Peter who does the speaking and preaching, boldly proclaiming the gospel even before the Sanhedrin. In Acts chapter 5, it's Peter who speaks to Ananias and Sapphira. In verse 15, the sick are dragged out onto the streets so that Peter's shadow would, 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 would go over them, and they would be healed. In Acts 5, 29-32, which Peter and the apostles are speaking before the Sanhedrin, but it's Peter who's actually talking. In Acts 8, 14-25, Peter and John go down to Samaria, but it's Peter who's the one who's talking to Simon the magician. In Acts 9, and third verse 13-43, it's Peter who goes to the churches in Israel, in Joppa and Lydda, Lydda and Joppa, and doing mighty acts, uh, healing the sick, raising the dead. And of course, in Acts chapter 10 and 11, in chapter 15, it is Simon Peter whom the Lord sends a vision that he has cleansed the Gentiles. It is Simon Peter who goes to Cornelius, and it is Simon Peter who is the first to preach the gospel of the kingdom before the Gentiles. And it is Simon Peter who would then testify what God did in sending the Holy Spirit upon Cornelius and his men to show that God has accepted the Gentiles as Gentiles in the discussions and disputes that were to follow. 
In Acts 12, Peter is arrested by Herod, but delivered by an angel. And so it's not surprising that Peter, excuse me, Paul, will testify to Peter's prominence as a pillar of the church in Galatians 1, 18 and chapter 2 and verse 9. Now at some point, Peter will leave Jerusalem, but will continue his apostolic ministry. In Galatians 2, 11 through 14, uh, Paul will talk about a time he had a, a, a confront Peter to his face because he had acted hypocritically, uh, associating with the Gentile Christians until some uh, Jewish Christians from Jerusalem showed up, and then he uh, withdrew himself. And that's either in 48 or 54, 55. First uh, Corinthians 1, 12 and 3, 22, one of the factions in the church in Corinth was Osephus. That seemed to indicate that Peter most likely had spent some time there. That church is established by Paul around 51, 52, and the letters written around 57, 58, maybe even 55, 57. So there's a very narrow window for those events to have taken place. Now, as an apostle, Peter matures greatly. He now has a full understanding of the gospel because of the Holy Spirit, and he remains the same character. Notice that he's very bold and very, you know, he's, he stands firm and speaks the word before the very people whom he was earlier too afraid to, to accept Jesus. And the consequences, now he's willing to do that. He's now channeled his impulses to the bold proclamation of the gospel of Christ. And he proves willing to suffer as Jesus did, to follow his Lord passionately. According to tradition, and most likely understanding of the reference in 1 Peter 5.13 to Babylon, it seems that Peter ends up in Rome. From Rome, Peter will write his two letters. 1 Peter was written to the Christians in modern-day Turkey and was done to encourage the Christians there to maintain hope of resurrection and to do good even though they suffer. To exhort them to live as servants of Christ, to be submissive to rulers, to suffer even when doing good, not to be disturbed by trials. And then in chapter 5 he writes as an elder to fellow elders, a shepherd oversee the flock over which the Holy Spirit had appointed them, not lording it over them, but by example that all do well to humble themselves, to cast their anxiety upon God, recognize that God is perfecting and establishing and strengthening Christians in and despite suffering, and that this is really grace. In 1 Peter 5. 2 Peter is framed as Peter's final exhortation, reminding everyone of the development of the faith and the character, the foundation of the gospel in the word and the witness, in 2 Peter 1, warnings about false prophets and their and teachers in 2 Peter 2, the recognition that scoffers will come, but there will be a judgment by fire in light of the fact that there was a judgment by flood, a commendation of Paul's letter, and an exhortation to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus in Second Peter 3. And so from these letters, we see that Peter is very concerned for fellow Christians, and he's very humble. He's definitely now Peter the Elder. He grounds Christians in their present reality with encouragement about what God is doing in Jesus. And so we can still see that same Peter. He's emphasizing action. He's very confident in Jesus. And he's modeled growth and development in faith in terms of how he's now exhorting others. Now finally, a lot said about Simon Peter in tradition. And there's, there's some of that we can accept, and there's some that's, that's, that's somewhat specious. Uh, the Gospel of Mark has been seen uh, through uh, the witness of Papias and Eusebius' ecclesiastical history and also in Irenaeus and against heretics. The, the Gospel of Mark was written by Mark according to the preaching of Simon Peter. And so when we read Mark, we're supposed to see that Simon Peter's witness to Mark who writes it down. And again, everything's suddenly and immediately and everything's happening quickly and it's mostly action-based. So that's uh, not unwarranted speculation. 
Simon Peter is said in the Acts of Peter to have been compelled to rebuke Simon the Magician in Rome. Uh, he had become a popular Gnosticizing and miracle teaching and miracle worker there. And he would later be known as the Heresiarch, Simon the Magician here, Simon the Sorcerer, the spring from which all future heresy would derive. And it would be one thing if it were just the Acts of Peter, but Justin Martyr, Epiphanius, Hippolytus, a lot of these guys uh, have this view of Simon the Magician. So it's there might be something to it. In John 21, 18 and 19, when Jesus is restoring Peter to his position, there's this veiled reference that is made. Uh, Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This, he said, comment is a commentary by John. That Jesus is foreshadowing to Peter, prophesying his death and suffering. According to tradition, Peter was condemned to die by Nero by crucifixion. But that Simon could not handle the idea that he would die the exact same way his Lord died. That he was not worthy of that. And so he was crucified upside down. First Clement 5, Tertullian's prescription against the heretics, Scorpiake, and the Acts of Peter, Origins, Commentary on Genesis, as seen in Eusebius's Ecclesiastical History. Now, did he die that way? We can't be certain, but it certainly sounds consistent with uh, Simon Peter, doesn't it? It's exactly the kind of thing you'd expect him to do. Now, we know that Peter would be exalted beyond his station, intended or even desired. He would be considered, by, like with Paul, as the founders of the church in Rome, and as the elders of Rome gave place to the bishop of Rome, the claim began that Peter was given special authority and that he granted that authority to his successors. And thus we have the papacy in the Roman Catholic Church. But the church in Rome was founded neither by Paul nor by Peter. It existed before uh, Paul wrote his letter to the Romans in 54. Uh, there were Pen Pente on Pentecost they were Roman Jews in Acts 2 and verse 10. Uh, Peter reckoned himself as an elder among elders in 1 Peter 5 and verse 1. And neither he nor any other apostle claimed their authority were transferable. And the Christians who came right after them did not make that claim either. Now, a lot of how people see Peter has more to do with these legends and traditions that have circulated about him after his death than anything written about him in life. And that's why we need to make sure that our understanding of Peter is rooted in the story told about him by the evangelists in Scripture. So what can we learn from Simon Peter? He's a very realistic and human model of faith. He is devoted to Jesus of Nazareth and his cause, even when he's not quite sure what it meant. He wants to come out to Jesus on the water, and he does so. But when he's afraid, he stumbles and falls. He confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but rebukes the Christ, the Son of the living God, when he spoke of his betrayal and death. He asserted he would be loyal to death and was willing to attack to save Jesus, but when the moment of crisis came, he denied him. And there's perhaps no scene that better exemplifies Simon Peter than what we see in John 13, verses 1 through 10, when Jesus is washing everybody's feet. He cannot bring him to himself to see his Lord humiliate himself to the point of washing his feet. And he's trying everything to remove the shame and or impulsively wanting more to have his face and his hands washed and everything else. So we can see that Simon Peter would mature 
that he would come to a full understanding of what God accomplished by hanging Jesus on a tree. And he would boldly stand for Jesus where he had once shriveled in fear. And he would give up everything to advance the kingdom. And he would follow Jesus to the point of death. That throughout, from beginning to end, he never lost his zeal nor his passion for what Jesus said and did. He matures in those passions, but he maintains them to the end. Very few speak about suffering as much as Peter does in the letters he wrote. Peter is very aware that he and other believers are going to suffer, and will suffer to follow Jesus. And he may not have ultimately died the way that all the legends have said, but that legend has all the marks of vintage Peter. He refused to die the way his Lord died, and was willing to suffer perhaps an even greater indignity, because as awful as crucifixion is right side up, it can't be much better upside down. To demonstrate the difference between him and his Lord. So that's why we need to do well to consider Peter. To grow like Peter. But to maintain the zeal and the boldness and passion of Peter. Two is he tells us to add faith with virtue. And with our virtue knowledge. With our knowledge self-control. With our self-control steadfastness. Our steadfastness godliness. The godliness brotherly affection. And with brotherly affection love to be perfected, encouraged, and strengthened in God, in and despite suffering, to partake in the heavenly glory with Peter and with all the other saints. We're again thankful that you've joined us. We hope that you've been encouraged. If you have any questions or comments about Simon Peter, maybe you'd like to talk about uh, becoming a Christian, accepting the witness of Jesus, maybe you just need to talk or have a prayer request. If there's any way I can be of service, please let me know. Please contact me through my website, theverbalvitae.com. That's www.deverbovita.com. Or if you're interested in learning more about Adventure to Christ or coming to, to meet with us, so you can find out more about us online at adventurechristchrist.org. And we're also on many forms of social media. We well, again, thank you. Have a great day.